Welcome everyone to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. At Evolution, we are committed to helping people and NHS organisations realise their potential. Our goal is to develop deep relationships with individuals, building trust to make doing business easier. We collaborate with NHS organisations to help them build high-performing digital teams. We achieve this by curating and sharing insights into the ever-evolving NHS and digital industries best practice, such as this podcast that we're running this morning. My name is Emma and today I'm your host. Today on the panel, we have three NHS leaders from the Yorkshire and Northeast region. We have Dan, Glenn and Adam. Before we move into the introductions, I'd just like to add that any views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of their organisation. Um, so before we kind of delve deeper into the discussion and topic um, of EPMA, we'll work our way around the room with some introductions. So I'd like to know who you are, what your role is, your background, and then what your biggest passion is. So Adam, you are first on my screen. So if you could go first. Uh, so I'm Adam Jackson. Uh, I am the pharmacy technician team manager of uh, Rosram's EPMA team. Um, my biggest passion within EPMA is clinical decision support. Perfect. Thank you very much. Um, Glenn, we'll come round to you next. Well, um, so my name is Glenn Lowes. Uh, I am the EPMA and informatics pharmacist for County Durham and Darlington. Um, my background was as a uh, clinical pharmacist for I think five to six years um, and then transitioned to the uh, EPMA role. Uh, the reason for that was I'm really passionate about um, sort of getting digital systems to uh, improve the way that we promote patient care. Fabulous. And then last but not least, Dan, round to you. Hi, yeah, I'm Daniel Pugh. I'm the, the lead technician for EPMA at South Tees NHS Trust. So I'm a pharmacy technician by background as well. Um, I've worked in various roles, starting in the, the pharmacy stores and up to where I am now. I would say my biggest passion is uh, in-house development and, and really empowering teams to develop solutions rather than depended on the larger suppliers for everything. Amazing. Thank you, everyone. Um, okay, so we'll move on to the kind of main um, discussion topics then now. So Dan, we're coming back around to you first. So we'll start off with your first topic, which is missed doses. So do you want to give us a bit of kind of context to that and then we'll move around and have the discussion? Yeah, so missed doses feels like a, a topic that gets brought up at every single discussion around EPMA. And I, th I think a lot of the ideas around missed doses have been done to death. And I, I don't know about yourselves, but... I imagine most people are pretty steady with their missed doses. So this was more around, do either of you have any systems in place to, to get a more real-time or close to real-time view if doses are being missed? So particularly this might tie into some of Glenn's things around critical medicines and that kind of stuff. Um, I'm just wondering really what, what kind of steps you've taken to, to move things to be more proactive rather than just reacting to those stats that we get every day or every week. Perfect, thank you. Glenn, we'll probably come around to you first on this one. Yeah, sure. So <clears throat> I think that's one of, to be fair, my, my biggest bugbears is that the reporting tools that I currently have available, <clears throat> like you say, are very much on more the reactive side of things. You know, it's looking at, you know, pulling uh, end of month data and things like that. <clears throat> so um, next week, uh, having a, a chat around getting some sort of more hopefully real time um, uh, auditing uh, in situ. I think ideally what I would like is sort of a daily report that runs to a variety of emails broken down by ward location etc. So there's always a set uh, you know email per ward that you know that you, where you'd find out you know which missed doses you've had uh, that previous day or you know within the previous few hours. Um, that's quite intensive 
to to set up. Um, but it will be really really useful to have. Um, I think it would be, to be brilliant to do, but you know to have that um, warning system set up in the first place is quite a challenge. Thanks, Glenn. Um, Adam, over to you. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's a very complex issue I find, and a lot of it's down to your data quality as well. So initially, when we went live with EPMA, we got this fantastic result on missed doses. And actually, you did a deep dive. Uh, what we realised is that where nurses hadn't um, done anything around administration, so not necessarily given the dose, but not said they've not given the dose either. Uh, and these uh, blank kind of administration points caused a, a massive problem for us. Uh, so we did quite a big ed education piece around around this. Leading into, um, you know, after a few years, we kind of got, um, and it's only just uh, kind of come to pass, is that we've got a Power BI that tracks in the same way as like Glenn, Glenn says. Uh, but my hope is that currently it's a monthly report, uh, which we take to various committees and things like that. But I certainly want to, I'd like to go to um, like maybe four hourly reporting. And I think particularly for like your lead nurses, ward managers to really be able to target what why doses are being missed um, and that kind of thing. So yeah, it's really difficult. Uh, and I think a lot of it relies on that you, your infrastructure in the background around data and data collection. Thank you, Adam. Um, Dan, kind of back round to you. Like, have you got any kind of further thoughts or like questions? No, I, I think everyone's kind of pretty much on the same page. We we have Power BI as well, and we're we're really pushing our supplier to start getting a frequent kind of pulls of that data. The ideal, as you say, would be you know if you could get it every well ten minutes would be ideal, but <laughs> let's uh, let's not go overboard. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, but just for things like you know. It's easy to say, oh, you've missed a dose of paracetamol here and you've not recorded anything. I'm thinking more like along the lines of Parkinson's meds where it's very, very important. But, you know, I think I think we're all in the same boat there in that we're waiting for the reporting to catch up with with kind of what the nurses want to do and what we want to do. But now I think that answers the question. Adam, come around back, back around to you, got your hand up. Uh, just you mentioned uh, Parkinson's meds. We... Uh, uh, a bit of a national push at minute on uh, Parkinson's meds. So we've recently developed um, a flag that will go on. We've got a, this lovely, lovely dashboard that works across hospital called CPA dashboard, and we've got internal developers that do that. Uh, what we what we are doing is we've managed to put a field in our drug dictionary that says it's a time critical med, and the hope is that that's going to flag that up. Uh, as to say, particularly Parkinson's bed, look, you really need to give this on time, that kind of thing. Thanks, Adam. Um, Glenn, coming back around to you, I know this kind of touched upon the topic that you wanted to discuss as well, really. So, Yeah, definitely. So in a similar vein to, to Adam and his team, um, something that I, a project that I undertook recently was around Parkinson's meds uh, administration. Um, so did a variety of things, both around the administration and prescribing side. So all meds containing levodopa of which to be fair i think we only realistically use probably three um they now all have an overdue timer of 15 minutes <clears throat> as well as that i've also added on um a tab within one of the nurses views so that they can see 
which patients they have on their ward on Parkinson's meds. So first thing in the morning, they can look and see, okay, we've got Parkinson's doses due at X, Y, and Z uh, times through the day. As well as that, I've also created a, <clears throat> a Parkinson's disease drug catalogue so that when someone's searching for a medicine that uh, is either has a higher risk or uh, is time critical, <clears throat> they search for this catalogue and that has pre-filled order sentences. So what I've done is I've built uh, an order sentence with a frequency of once a day, time specific, right the way through to seven times a day, time specific. And there's a few little alerts that fire with that. <clears throat> So when a user selects this once a day time specific, it will then prompt them to adjust that time frequency. So it's still in the background, I have to set it to a certain time, but there is a prompt that says, you know, have you customized this to that patient's actual um, schedule, those timings. <clears throat> and as a result of that, over the past sort of six months or so, so from July to uh, December, I've had about a 6% improvement in Parkinson's doses given on time, which doesn't sound huge, but it's about, it's a it's a couple of hundred doses across a month. Um, so yeah, that's been really, really useful. Thanks, Glenn. Um, Dan, is there anything kind of like you want to add to that? No, I think that's about it. I was just going to say 6% does sound pretty huge to me, especially if you're one of them patients. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully it's, uh, hopefully it's making a difference. Bob, anything else from you, Adam? Uh, just to kind of say that I think, I think one thing that we all forget uh, in uh, EPMA is that it's not only just about prescribing, it's definitely about how you communicate with nurses. Um, and it's and it is a diffi difficult task. Um, and I'm trying, really trying this year to get that collaborative working with like with doctors, but also with nursing colleagues. Um, you know, EPMA is not just about pharmacy and it's trying to integrate and get people to integrate into that team. Um, which is a, diff a difficult task. You know, nurses want to care for patients, doctors want to care for patients, so they don't want uh, they don't want bothering by EPMA guys. But you know, we do it out of kindness of results. I'm sure they realise. Thanks, Adam. Um, Glenn, I know that we kind of touched upon your question there. Really, is is there anything further that you want to kind of add to that? Um, yeah. So the <clears throat> well, obviously Parkinson's meds are uh, some of the time criticals. Um, we've also got. Uh, critical meds uh, along the lines of uh, the likes of insulins and uh, anti-epileptics and whatnot. Um, I'm curious if you guys have any um, processes or policies in place that let you uh, either keep track of patients on critical meds so that when they are re-attending you can see them you know at the point of, of readmission or if there's some way for uh, your pharmacy team or medical team or nursing team to pick those patients out of the crowd and sort of prioritise them ahead of time. Um, I know the, that uh, the, the Royal College of Emergency Medicine is, is sort of doing an audit on that as well uh, at the minute, mostly around Parkinson's and uh, insulin meds. Thanks, Glenn. Um, Adam, I could see you nodding your head along there a little bit, so do you want to go first? Um, yeah, it's it's a difficult uh, it's a difficult kind of thing to achieve. Uh, one of the things that we've done uh, is actually we've got a critical medicines policy. However, uh, it's about four or five years old, and it contains an awful lot of medicines. You know, to a point where we're looking at nearly eighty percent of everything that we give is critical. And in, the, in hospitals, we are we're looking at rapid treatment often. So it is it's look at using that policy. It's quite difficult to pick drugs out of the crowd. 
So we're kind of we're kind of looking at redesigning it. Uh, so we've gone for three categories. Um, so one is a critical med. So just a med that's important that it's to be given. Um, but we're happy if it's given within two hours of its scheduled time. Um, then for things like your insulin, um, things like that. We, again, it's time critical, but we're saying it's a bit more important. You need to give it within an hour, ideally, of your scheduled time. Uh, and then things where it might be rapid treatment. So first dose antibiotics, for example, um, it, like you said, your anti-epileptics, things like that. Um, so we're developing that in the background. And um, again, what we're trying to do is highlight to the nurse that they've got something. Um, so again, using the queries in the drug dictionary to kind of flag to say, look, you've got you've got these kind of things on there. Hopefully you've got it on ward, but if you've not got it on the ward, we're trying to add in another step of communication to say, actually you've ordered something from pharmacy that's time critical. We've got it ready within half an hour for you. You need to come and collect it. So, I mean, it's a work in progress. Um, but yeah, uh, hopefully with that comes data and some and lovely data dashboard. Uh, but again, we do try and report on critical medicines on a monthly basis in medication safety and things like that. Um, but yeah, time will tell. Uh, I only think things will improve. Thank you, Adam. Um, Dan, we'll come round to you. Yeah, I think I, I think I probably echo Adam's sentiments um, with most of the stuff around critical medicines policies. You know, there's no way a nurse is ever going to learn all the critical medicines. Um, we do have a little icon on our EPMA that says that a medicine's critical. But what we're trying to do, that the road that we're going down is we're trying to work more closely with our supplier to get just what I generally perceive as some common sense changes. So, for instance, if a nurse chooses to um, mark a drug as not given and it's critical medicine, they're going to have to, you know, we want the supplier to force them to have to put in a reason. And then we want a link to our Omnicell webpage so they can see where that drug is kept in the hospital. Things like that, you know, just that that kind of helping hand that says to the nurse, actually, this is really not a good idea. You have to look at this, not because the nurse doesn't want to give it, but just because they might not know. Um, and secondly, we've done we've done a lot of work with our supplier and, you know, they've been very good at reaching out to us personally around Glenn mentioned prioritization and trying to pick out people who have those critical medicines. So we've done a lot of work around having some kind of um, and if this is this is more of a technical solution, but around having some kind of configurable rules. So when a patient comes in, you look at all the medicines that they're on and you say, right, if they have reached critical medicine, give them two points. For each Parkinson's medicine, give them four or whatever, and you, you would change those values. And in that way, obviously, patients get a score built up, and then you can sort them by the score. That's the general idea. Now we don't have a time frame for release for that, and it's still something that that we kind of struggle with quite a bit. I would say, I would say, to to give you some context, our trust has gone through quite a significant period of of technological change within the last year or so. I mean, we we've not had EPMA in a full year yet on every inpatient ward. We're still waiting to go to outpatients. We're currently implementing our noting solution, which would have things like, you know, patient flags that persist across episodes for certain drugs that are particularly uh, concerning. So we, we're still kind of in the middle of a lot of flux, but I'm really hoping that the work that we've done with the suppliers will help to take a lot of that manual kind of checking and knowledge out of it. We as the system admins can configure it and just present to the user, here is the, you know, here's the patient you need to be most concerned about and here's why. Um, so that's that's kind of the plan. It's not 
yeah, it's not it's not perfect at the moment. It's certainly far from perfect. I think you know reporting and back end stuff does have some part to play, but if we're talking about prioritization and actively working to identify the patients you need to see first, we're still waiting on on suppliers to do that for us. I think. Thanks, Dan. Um, and then Glenn, I guess back round to you. Is there kind of anything that you want to, to add or any further questions? Yeah, no, just that it's really interesting that we all kind of are looking in the, the same sort of things. So, you know, having persistent flags, you know, that, that go across episodes. Um, and like Dan said, I'm really hoping to try and get in something like when a nurse is, uh, is documenting a medicine is not given. If it is something we classify as critical, having, you know, just a few steps in to say, actually, this really needs to have some sort of additional um information supplied either that yes it is genuinely not being given or if you haven't had a, a chat with a, a clinician or the on-call pharmacist then actually you need to try and source that from the emergency drug cupboard or wherever else um but yeah similar to, to dan there need to go through um supplier to get something more robust in situ perfect thank you very much um and then adam i guess we'll come around to you in, in your topic then so ai do you want to give us a bit of idea no, of um... <laughs> So really, it's a bit of an ass because um, actually, as a trust, we're quite digitally mature. Uh, we've had our EP, EPR in place 10 years, EPMA five years. Uh, we've gone through a lot of changes in that time. And certainly, uh, I feel Dan, Dan's pain. Uh, but one year in is, uh, is a tough point in your EPMA journey. Um, so we're kind of looking now at, you know, I'm not saying that uh, our system's foolproof or anything like that, but ways to improve it and looking outside, uh, you know, our EPMA provider um, software is starting to look at AI. Um, so I'm just starting my journey into what seems a, a massive topic. Um, but yeah, just kind of wondered where you think you might use AI in your trust. Thanks, Adam. Um, Dan will come round to you on this one first yeah um it's a, i find ai a bit of a weird one because i absolutely love technology but I, I have a bit of a a bit of a luddite attitude towards ai and i think it's because at the moment it's a black box so you just put stuff in and it spits it out and you don't know how it's got to that decision um which is fine you know if you want it to write you a poem or draw you a picture it's not fine if you're asking it to give you a patient health care plan or something like that because you need to know what it's taken into account i think there are i think that ai for decision support is possibly possibly a little way away my thoughts on ai will be it will probably be very very good for pattern recognition for identifying trends for looking at you know your data sets and and uncovering insights that just a human wouldn't see the data points that people wouldn't put together um but again, I think in the NHS, we're very, very conservative about new technology. And you know, I think there is there is a strong pressure for suppliers not to change too much because then you have to retrain your entire workforce and you have to do all your risk management, et cetera, et cetera. I think there are places for it, but I think we're a long way away from, from it being found for now. One thing that I did see in the past that um, I found really, really interesting was I had a, a demonstration with a company called Signal. 
So kind of like Signal, but S-E-E. Um, they're an Israeli company and they had something that wasn't, it wasn't quite AI, but it was more machine learning and pattern recognition, which basically looked at all the drugs a patient was on, looked at the lab results and said, well, you can change this to that. You can do this, you can do the other. And I think something like that, that's not through AI, that's not just you saying, work this out, but something that's kind of supplemented by it was really, that's possibly the way forward. Um, I think, you know, AI for OBS, and that kind of stuff, absolutely. You know, your new scores or patient change in condition. I think AI will be able to see things, that, recognize things that a human just wouldn't, or far before a human. But yeah, that's. Sorry, I'm, I'm rambling a bit there. I'm going to stop now. <laughs> no, thank you, Dan. Um, Glenn, we'll come round to you. Yeah, sure. I'm not sure I've got much to add after Dan's pretty, um, pretty well-rounded uh, response there. I think. Um, probably in a similar sort of vein, um, somewhat of a Luddite in terms of, I like having a, the, the clinicians have to make a clinical decision. I don't like necessarily um, where you have things like uh, the genomycin dose or whatever is calculated for the end user. I still want someone to make that clinical decision. Um, I don't massively like the idea of de-skilling people um, and just saying, because then when they transfer trust, if it's a junior doctor and actually now you transfer to someone that doesn't have that same functionality in place, you're now essentially a worse prescriber. <clears throat> um, I think um, where it would be useful is in the report side of things be it either building a report, if you need to use uh, SQL um, database analyst information, uh, or like I'm saying, pattern recognition in that information that comes through, you know, uh, are issues coming more from a particular ward, a particular subset of patients, a particular time of day, things like that, things that AI will just pull out where we would have to manually, you know, think about those, um, those trends. Amazing. Thanks, Glenn. Um, and I guess, Adam, back round to you. Is there anything kind of like you right. want to ask? Yeah, I think I'm actually I'm completely on the same kind of level that you know I don't want AI to take over in healthcare. It'd be really dangerous. You know, the human factor is really important. Um, I think the the way that I'm kind of looking at things is you know looking at certain like human jobs where a lot of decisions are being made or making bottlenecks. That that's where AI steps in, gets rid of that bottleneck. Uh, I'm particularly thinking in, uh, you know, one of my aims um, is to get rid of paper, which is very difficult in pharmacy. Uh, we, we do all of it. We do all of our paper, uh, but it's using using AI to kind of enhance that process. I think um, that like digital workers say that could work as my receptionist and track everything in, so we know where the times are going. Um, document production. Obviously, we've got um, we legally we have to keep records and what we've done uh, in a paperless system. That record becomes difficult, but if we can use AI to generate that doc that documentation for our legal records, I thought that'd be a good place to start. Uh, um, something I discussed yesterday uh, was that actually, from a prioritisation point of view, if you've got a machine to kind of skim read admission documents which couldn't happen hours before we even see pharmacy in our trust uh you know we don't cover a and e particularly well um actually use using ai to as a prioritization tool that can say oh actually the, these key phrases have triggered in an admission document and maybe get 
Well, let's get someone from pharmacy down there. Well, thank you, Adam. Yeah, just when, when Adam was talking there, I was thinking uh, that there probably is a very good use case for AI when it comes to pulling together disparate information from different systems, particularly for people who don't have access to those systems. So I'm thinking something along the lines of a chatbot. So the nurse has the pharmacy chatbot. They say, I sent down my drugs for this patient. Where are they? And that goes and asks whatever system it needs to ask. And obviously, because it understands all the technical aspects, it just brings you back a nice English response saying, yeah, um, we got that at 12.15. It got checked, but there was an error. It's being redispensed now. I think something like that, where AI just puts the dots together. um, And like Glenn says, it's kind of it's not a million miles away from kind of that trend analysis. It's basically just reaching into some data, putting it together and then converting it to English. Or like Glenn says, a nice user friendly report in front end so a consultant wants a report instead of coming to us and saying can you please create me this report and save it to power bi they just ask the ai to just say oh show me all the doses of lisinopril on these wards in the past two weeks and the ai works that out like glenn says generates the sql query puts it back in a nice form and says you know do you want to save this to excel and you say yes or no and that's it it's it's much more throwaway much more kind of responsive than the, the the process that we have at the moment i think that ai would definitely have a place there but i think you could apply that across the majority of services in the hospital um you know if your food's late you speak to the catering chatbot or whatever you know i i think you could you could go to that level thanks dan um and then glenn ran to you well um yeah so i mean so the system that <clears throat> that we run is um Cerner Millennium and it has um, a set of bespoke rules that you can build or customize called uh, EKMs and they're pretty broad to be honest and they kind of cover a lot of if you were uh, you know proactive and wanted to build them ahead of time <clears throat> they would kind of cover a lot of what you mentioned there for AI like they can pull together different succinct bits of information and say if all of these bits of information all of these bits of criteria are met then actually this fires x y or z alert <clears throat> So we're quite fortunate in that regard that we have access to that um, and that kind of fill that niche. Um, the bit that you mentioned around like prioritization for if this criteria is met, then something needs a pharmacy review. <clears throat> I guess you would need to look at whether that piece of uh, AI or technology is being used for all user groups because someone who is high priority for a doctor to see might not necessarily be high priority for pharmacy to see. Uh, a patient who's had a fall and cracked the head open, really high priority for pharmacy for a doctor to see, but actually turns out they're on no critical meds whatsoever. So pharmacy ne- don't necessarily want to prioritize that patient in the same way. So I think if we're going to use like a, a one one tool for prioritization, um, I think it'll be pretty difficult to to do unless you're going to have that tool prioritized per speciality, you know, high risk for pharmacy, but actually patient is doing really well from an OBS perspective, things like that. Um, so yeah, I think it'd be really difficult to to have like a one size fits all for prioritization. Um, but yeah, that's one of my main concerns when people have mentioned uh, like a, a an AI prioritization. Fab, thank you, Glenn. Um, and then again, Adam, back round to you. Is there anything else that you want to add? I feel like we could go this topic. You could go on for quite a while, I think. But yeah, yeah, no, actually, no. It's it's been a really uh, fruitful conversation for me. Uh, it's nice to talk to people and see what other people think. It's uh, it's difficult. It's a difficult subject, particularly in healthcare. Fab, amazing. And then I guess we're back back round to kind of the start again. So 
and we've still got a bit of time left so we've got two more topics so Dan will come back round to you um, to talk around closed loop administration so over to you on this one. Yeah, so I guess this is an I've I've chosen two perpetual issues with EPMA. Um, closed loop administration is something that I get asked about quite a lot by our senior leadership team. I'm not sure that they fully understand the concept or particularly the expense of closed loop administration. Um, but I'm just wondering, from a specific point of view, um, do, do you two use Omnicell cabinets or or an equivalent? Not in my current trust. Um, no. No, I think they were really useful though. Obviously, Dan and I have worked together in a, in a uh, previous life, um, and mm-hmm. Omnicell was was really really useful. Um, yeah, mass, I think they are really beneficial. Uh, yeah. But sadly, no, not at this point in time. Uh, no, we don't we don't have uh, an Omnicell uh, solution. Uh, we we use BD, um, so we've got a couple of their products in pharmacy. Uh, one of them is a med station, which is very similar to what Omnicells do, but we actually use that for our, our hours cupboard. Yeah. Um, the the other solution we've got is uh, it's called C two Safe, um, and that's basically an electronic drugs cabinet, um, and we're actually using it as a an electronic drugs register as well, cool. and it's really streamlined that process. Well, the reason I ask is because South Tees have gone pretty all in on Omnicells and so have a lot of the, the previous trusts that I've worked at. Um, and that really complicates things when it comes to closed loop, because if you want to do true closed loop, you need the medication, the chart or the screen and the patient in the same place. Now, Omnicells make sure that that's never, ever going to happen. Um, with you two not using the cabinets, I guess you can have a different point of view to for, from me but kind of what are your plans for closed loop if any is it something that you're actively exploring is it something that you know you're aware is you're going to need to do in five years ten years but you're just not bothered about at the moment just just really to get a bit of an idea of how far along people are thanks dan um glenn will come around to you first yeah sure so it's definitely something that um that some is capable of doing um the main barriers to that really are making sure that you've actually got the scanners available on each of the nursing teams, either computer on wheels or if they have a, a, a portable med station. Um, it's half the battle maintaining that catalogue of scannable medicines. So when a new product comes in and that's in your pharmacy robot, you know, um, how is that information gathered? Do we wait until it ends up out on award and run a retrospective report for items which haven't been able to scan, then subsequently scan it, because um, the the stores team may not necessarily realise obviously when a new box comes in. Um, I think really for us the first step is actually making sure that we get positive patient ID to begin with, um, and that's just really around having scanner availability and whatnot. Um, I think it'd be really helpful, but things like having to scan twice on the box for a, a full one gram of paracetamol, it'll be quite labor intensive and i wonder if the the time cost will outweigh the patient safety benefits but i kind of feel like omnicell is is closing administration by proxy i guess because you've still got you could still scan a patient and administer those medicines to the patient and your omnicell is still recording the information for what medicines you took out so it's kind of closely by proxy that you, you're doing one half of it at the patient's bedside and you're doing the other half um in that drug treatment room um so as long as the 
meds you're booking out are going to that med patient that you scanned, then you've kind of got your closed loop there, kind of. Thanks, Glenn. Um, Adam, we'll come round to you. Um, I've got to say, probably, although it is on my radar, I don't think it's high up in my trust uh, kind of scheme of work. Uh, you know, I don't get a lot of pressure about it, but that's because we we struggle on, well, have struggled in the past with just scanning patients. Um, you know, you've got nurses with workstations on wheels, they're wireless. That means your wireless network's got to be capable of handling all this extra IT kit. Um, and more than likely, the scanner that they used to scan the, pa- the patient will not be compatible with a system to scan a drug. Um, you know, a lot of manufacturers are only putting 2D barcodes on the drugs now. So, you know, you've got to have a scanner that's capable of doing 1D, 2D um, scanning. You know, that could, 2D scanning comes at a cost. Uh, and worry about, do worry about efficiency of how they're going to perform that at a bedside. Um, BD have a solution. It's not necessarily, although it looks very slick. Again, it probably won't be something that we'd go for because it pulls what it would do. That interface pulls you away from interacting with our EPMA system, and really, it should. For me, it should drive from within that. Uh, so I think actually, probably even as an industry, we're a really long way off of having that capability of scanning drugs at a patient's bedside. Um, yeah, I, I think a lot needs to happen before we get there. I'm going to use this podcast uh, as... So I'll use this podcast as evidence next time our director of digital <laughs> ask me when we get closed loop. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there anything else you kind of want to ask, Dan, or...? No, I, I think that pretty much covers it. I think it's... <laughs> Closed loop is one of those things that every every big report says, oh, we'd save loads of money and loads of time and get loads of data if we did this. Um, but until the until the processes are there, it's just words. It's just a, it's just a dream, you know. Wouldn't it be great if all our cars drove themselves? Well, yes, but until the technology is actually there, it doesn't make any difference saying it would be great because we needed to needed to be ready. So yeah, it, it's it's just something. It's something that constantly comes up, and I'm just interested in other people's opinions, particularly those who don't use the Omnicell cabinets, which obviously adds an extra layer of difficulty to the entire process. Perfect. Okay, and then I think we're on to the last topic now. Um, so, Glenn, we're back around to you um, on patient safety around complex meds prescribing. So, over to you. Well, thanks. Um, so, yeah, I was just wondering um, what processes, if any, <clears throat> um, you guys might have put in to support uh, clinical t- decision making for uh, complex meds prescribing. So things that are just maybe a little bit fiddly. Um, so things like <clears throat> tycoplanin. So the first dose, the first three doses, 12 hours apart. And then after that, it's daily. But if you're prescribing that at four in the morning, you know, then you can have it four in the morning, four in the afternoon four in the morning again and then theoretically it's going to continue triggering at four in the morning which isn't really all that helpful for uh for ward teams um as well as things like i mentioned earlier that i'd made a a parkinson's disease um drug catalog um have you got anything sort of similar to that that um that you use to streamline prescribing processes or to promote good prescribing practices especially for critical or complex meds 
Thank you, Glenn. Um, Adam, we'll come round to you first. I think the the way that we do that um, is the best way for us uh, within Meditech, which is the solution that we use, is something called order sets. Um, we've actually got quite good with them. Uh, we've realised that we could put a lot of information, so you know, kind of recommendations, things that a prescriber might want to consider before they get to the point of actually ticking a box. So this is the strength I want. Uh, so we've done that in a few different ways. Uh, we've got a Parkinson's order set, but it's a, a, a nil by mouth patient. That's in an order set and kind of shows them how to convert into um, like either crushing or going for a different uh, product, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, it's all it's all about keeping away from uh, the drug dictionary in itself. Um, and unfortunately, we've not always been able to predict that. Uh, we do have serious incidents that actually prompt us to look at uh, particular drugs. Uh, we've, we've had one round digoxin, so we've put in a digoxin order set that's really quite prescriptive about, you know, what condition are you treating, uh, you know, all, all kinds of different like observation guidance things like that uh, and they work really well um, but the problem is because we've not got an order set for everything uh, they have to know it's there which means we have to do an awful lot of promotion uh, you know we send out but we send out a bulletin but then we have to try and get in you know into his comms team uh, you know, do videos, so they're quite labour-intensive things to get out. Not only have you got to produce it, you've got to kind of promote it as well. Uh, but it's definitely the way that I want us to move. Um, one of the things that I always kind of point out and pick at is that actually our antibiotic policy, I'd love to make into an order set and treat by diagnosis kind of thing, you know, rather than looking for a particular drug there you go. Community acquired pneumonia. This is what you do. This is what they do with mm. repentant allergy, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it takes a lot of work and enga clinician engagement, which can be difficult sometimes. It's a lot easier when there's been a serious incident, which I think it's why it's hard to be proactive and you have to be reactive. Um, but yeah, that's definitely the way that Meditech works and what seems to work best for our trust. Thank you, Adam. And Dan, round to you. Yeah. So what Adam mentioned there around the the kind of um, the words gone out of my head when you prescribe by what the patient has indication based prescribing. Um, but that's what we've done with a lot of our order sets. Um, so we we have the order sets, um, and then if an order set isn't isn't definitive enough, you know, if it's something very very awkward to prescribe, um, then we have something further called a protocol, which is a little bit confusing because some people call order sets protocols and they get mixed up. But anyway, when I say protocol, what I mean is you have a grid, kind of like uh, Microsoft Excel. You choose the times down one side, you choose the days down the other side, and then you put in the dose that's going for each day and each time. That works great. And we do have the functionality to say, no matter when you prescribe this drug, lock the times to this. What we don't have, and what I've never had in any EPMA system, which again feels like a, a bizarre omission, is you can't say give this drug X hours or give this dose X hours after this dose. You can't say I want a gap of this much. Um, no matter when it's prescribed, I just want a gap of this much. And that that becomes really awkward. And I think, you know, that really kind of first came to light for me 
there was a, a clinical trial for COVID where we needed to prescribe after X amount of hours. And it was just a nightmare. It was an absolute nightmare to set up no matter how many order sets you do, unless you make an order set for every possible start time, which would just be absolutely mental, then you 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 would just never get there. Um, so I think there's still some work to do. You know, I think if we got that functionality to say, actually, you have to lock these times. So, you know, if you've got chlordiazepoxide for someone who's coming off alcohol or got alcohol withdrawal, and you want to lock the time specifically. If you've got another one where you can say it has to be 12 hours after the first dose, but then it's a 8, 12 and 6. Right, great. I think we just need that extra little bit of functionality from some of the suppliers to to help with critical prescribing. Interestingly enough, our trust has bought two EPMAs. And you know, when you said that this reflects our own opinion, I'm going to reiterate that. I don't think that was particularly the right choice. But anyway, that's the road that they've gone down. And we have an EPMA for critical care that is specific to critical care. Um, a lot of a lot of the um, kind of argument around getting that EPMA was that that pulls data directly from things like drug pumps. So when we're looking at critical prescribing for people who are like on ITU or end of life care, I think getting that data directly from a drug pump, that really, you know, I suppose it, it goes more into goes more into the realm of administration but with those pre kind of defined catalogs in the drug pumps it also makes the prescribing a lot easier so i think when you're in a situation where you're using you know kind of drug pumps quite a lot i think that that makes a massive difference um not so much epma but it does tie into it very closely perfect thanks dan um glenn just kind of bringing that back round to you is there any kind of further questions anything else you want to add yeah, just the, um, obviously we use, uh, we call them power plans, but a similar sort of vein. So we actually do, uh, as of a couple of months ago, now have prescribing by indication um, for our antimicrobials, um, which I haven't done a huge amount of audit work on. Uh, thankfully, the antimicrobial team are taking the helm on that one. Um, but yeah, that was quite a big piece of work to get up and running. And hopefully it just helps people to streamline um, and follow the sort of trust guidelines, obviously with... Um, with antimicrobial resistance and whatnot, uh, still rearing its ugly head. Um, yeah, I think it's really, really useful to to get in place. Um, yeah, I just wanted to see if you guys had anything sort of different or if you're working along the same sort of lines, but it, it seems like everyone's working towards the same sort of ballpark, so it's brilliant. No, thank you very much. Is there anything anyone else wants to add before we wrap up? I would just say, I think, you know, with like your power plans, your order sets, whatever, whatever they're called in your product, I think the thing that, the, mo the reason the most important is, you know, come August, we've got a fresh set of doctors coming out of university and everyone in pharmacy knows what happens to prescribe, prescribing standards in August. And, you know, it generally is not their fault. They're under a lot of pressure and, you know, it's, big, it's great to have a system there to support these junior colleagues. It's like they start their journey into healthcare career uh, and it's it's really important. Um, EPMA saves lives. What a nice way to end. <laughs> <clears throat> Fab. All right. Well, before we kind of just end the podcast, I just want to say a massive, massive thank you to you all for sharing your kind of thoughts and insights on the conversation today. Once again, our guests today on today's podcast have been Dan Glenn and Adam. If you are hiring for a new technical role or looking for a new role, feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. Um, or if you know anyone else that would like to be featured on a future, future podcast, you can drop me a message too. You can find me on LinkedIn alongside my contact details. Thanks again to all of our guests and thank you for listening. <laughs>